0: Philippians chapter 1 this morning, if I can find it in my Bible. I know it's in here somewhere. Philippians, There it is. Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you there somewhere, a black book in front of you there, and uh, we'd encourage you to follow along in that. If you brought your Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verse number 19 today. I want to speak to you just for a few minutes on the joy of living in expectation. The joy of living in expectation. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Again. again father we're so thankful for your word pray you'd speak to us now through it fill me with your spirit help lord the preparation and the study to all come to fruition now and i pray that you would just guide and direct as we uh, as we turn our attention to this your word it is your word it's not the words of of men it's uh, the holy inspired inerrant infallible perfect will of god, or word of god and i pray today that you would just speak to our hearts through it help me father today Forgive me for anything that would hinder my usefulness. Fill me with your spirit that I might preach exactly what I should, just how I should. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we made mention of the fact that Paul was responding apparently to some current concerns from the Philippians uh, about his welfare. Uh, he was in prison, as he wrote this letter, and uh, they were concerned about that. And so he uh, continues here, I think, in these verses to respond a little bit to that concern I think he 's acknowledging something here that they must have expressed, and they must have been fearing, and that was that he could very well die that the uh, the result of his imprisonment the, the culmination of his imprisonment, might well be his death, and he might well be martyred for Christ. He was convinced, however, that that was not going to happen, and he would be released and see them again as we 're going to see as we work down through there, but I think that 's what uh, the occasion was of these comments, he was responding still to their concerns. And I think we see his thoughts concerning these realities unfold here in, in, in several different ways. Uh, I think he wrote of some things here that he knew to be true. We see the, word, I, the words I know a couple of different times here. Uh, I think he wrote of, of a dilemma that he faced as he pondered this possibility, even though he didn't think he was going to die. He was pondering the possibilities and it was causing a dilemma in his mind and uh, as he thought about uh, the possibility of his death. And the third thing I think he wrote about here was how he expected things to turn out. So that's kind of the way we're going to divide it up today. Things he knew, things that were his dilemma that he faced, and uh, what his expectation was. So let's let's talk first of all, here's what I know. Here's what I know, verses 19 through 21. Twice in the passage that I read this morning, Paul used that phrase, I know. Those verses are bookends to this section, as Paul twice says, I know. He said, I know that I will be delivered, and I know that I shall remain and continue with you. And so again, even though there was the real possibility that he could be sentenced to death as a result of his imprisonment, he was confident, yea, he was convinced that God was going to deliver him. But I think there's some other things that we could say that he knew here, even though he doesn't use the words, I know, uh, in relation to these things. I think there's several things as we look down through this passage that we can see he was very, very confident of, things that he just knew. For example, I think we see quite obviously that he knew that prayer works. He knew that prayer works. You can't read verse number 19 without coming away with that conclusion. In verses 9 through 11, he had told the Philippians that he was praying for them. He had told them what he was praying for them. And now in verse number 19, he writes of his confidence in their praying for him and how that made him feel. And even more than being encouraged by it, he was convinced. Efficacy of their prayers. You're praying for me. God answers prayer. And I know prayer works. I think we see that there in verse number 19. You know. A lot of us older believers, and it saddens me to no end that I have to continuously refer to myself in this way now, but a lot of us older believers uh, have experienced that very same kind of confidence. If you're a young Christian, you might not have got there yet. You might not have had something happen in your life like this. But you know, you, you come across trials or sickness or fractured relationships or loss of someone you love, you find yourself sustained, you find yourself born along. By the knowledge that your brothers and sisters are praying for you. It's a tangible thing. You really do experience it. I mean, if I were to ask for a raising of hands today, I'm sure that many would say that they've, they've been there. I was there when my son was sick, and I could feel the prayers of God's people bearing me along. I was there when my wife passed away, and I could feel the prayers of God's people bearing me along. There was a peace that came over my soul and a certainty that came with it, that God hears and God answers prayer. And God's people were praying for me. And by the way, I cannot help now but put in a little plug for our Wednesday evening prayer meetings. You ought to be at Wednesday evening prayer meetings. I can't fathom why a Christian would not want to be in Wednesday evening prayer meetings. I confess that there are some Wednesdays when I, I change my thinking on that. You know, like 15 minutes before prayer meeting, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to go to prayer meeting. I, don't, I just really don't want to do this. I don't feel like doing this. But I'll tell you what, there's never been a time that I went that I didn't change my tune on that. Because you get there and you listen to God's people pray. And even if you don't pray, even if you just sit there quietly and pray quietly and never open your mouth, you feel the power of prayer. Paul was confident. He knew that prayer works. And I think he knew something else here. I think his confidence was not just in the prayers of his Philippian brothers and sisters. You notice he also says here that he trusted in the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He knew that the Holy Spirit of God was working on his behalf, was working in the hearts and minds of all those with Whom he had to do, those who sat in judgment, those who would decide his case, his jailers, his guards, uh, all those in authority were all under the authority of the Spirit of God. And that gave him strength, that gave him confidence that he was in good hands. But you know, more than that, though, I think that little phrase, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I think in this, this context it had a very specific meaning. And I can't be sure of this, but this is just what I think. I think he might have been thinking of one particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is described in Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul knew the Philippian brothers and sisters were praying for him. I think Paul also was referring here to the fact that he knew the Holy Spirit was praying for him. you ever get a hold of that truth? I mean, think about that. The Holy Spirit was praying for him. No matter how fallible, imperfect the prayers are of the people of God who might be praying for you, and the best we can do is imperfect, the Holy Spirit of God prays just right, just perfectly. Paul knew prayer works, and he was prayed for. Something else Paul knew, I think, was something that our brother Sonny Neff said some months before the Lord took him home. He stood up and he told us that he had been diagnosed with cancer. You may remember this day. Many people remember this day, and Sonny said, "Whether the Lord cures me of cancer and gives me more time, or allows uh, that cancer to take me home, either way, I win. I've never forgotten that. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in verses 20 and 21. Christ will be magnified in me, whether through life or death. He knew he could not lose. Either way, life or death, he won. I'm convicted." by what Paul described there as his overriding desire, aren't you? Paul's desire was that Christ would be magnified, not in himself, not in Paul, but but, but, but that he would magnify Christ. And the way he stated it is very specific. He, he desperately wanted Christ to be magnified in his body. Did you notice that? You know, it's... Uh, Every word of Scripture is important, and I don't don't think we want to gloss past that. In his body, think about that for a moment. Everything, everything that we do with our bodies should magnify and glorify the Lord. I wonder if that is your heart. I wonder if it is mine. It was the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? He sent, he, uh, Jesus said, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. It's another way of saying the same thing, isn't it? Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. Magnifying Christ in my body. I think in some ways I get that. I think I do. I mean, why do I wear a sports jacket or a suit on Sunday mornings? I get yelled at for that sometimes. There are some people who think that I should dress down on Sunday mornings. I can't get my brain there. I'm not going to get my brain there. Quit telling me that. It's not going to happen. Because I believe that we ought to worship the Lord with our bodies. I believe that when we stand up to worship the Lord, we ought to look our best, dress our best. Uh, I I, I think that's the case. Why, why, Why does the Bible tell women in particular to dress modestly rather than come to church like they're going to the beach? Why does does the Bible say that? Because we are to magnify the Lord with our bodies. I've talked about this before, and I know the ladies are going to get mad at me right now, but that's okay. Because I know I'm right. There is some wicked nonsense that is oftentimes taught to young women. I have read and heard some of the godliest Christian women give this very same advice, and it's, it's just not true. And that advice is this, that they give to young ladies. It's your body. Don't let anybody tell you differently. You know what that is? I'll tell you what that is. That is a lie of the devil. It's the oldest lie of the devil. It's the same exact lie that he used on the very first young lady when he told her, it doesn't matter what God says, you can do whatever you want to do. The Bible says so plainly, and not more and more than once, that your body is not yours. And it, it's not mine either, neither is neither is my body mine. This is not a problem normally with men. It's usually a problem with women, but it applies to equally to both. First Corinthians chapter six, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice it couldn't be any more clear. It's not yours. It's God's. Everything with that we do with our body should magnify. God. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 1031. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by Paul because the Apostle Paul here is an illustration to me of the mature believer, the true disciple, the one who is serious about his or her faith and not just as so many of us today, nominal in our Christianity. His Christianity permeated every minute of his life. There was no compartmentalization with Paul. He didn't elevate career or sports. And believe me, if you read his writings, if you read the New Testament, you know the Apostle Paul was a sports fanatic. He loved sports as much as anybody today. He didn't elevate entertainment or family or anything else above God. He said, with all boldness, all boldness, Always, all the time, he desired to magnify Christ in his body. So we dare not skip over that part. It's important. And by the way, before I move on to the next point, what do you suppose he meant by magnify Christ anyway? What does that mean, to magnify Christ? I mean, how can we make Christ any greater than he is? How can we magnify him? I mean... That doesn't make much sense. What did he mean by that phrase, Christ will be magnified? Well, I think he was using it in the same day, same way we might use it as something like the stars. We can't make the stars shine any brighter, can we? But you know what we can do with the stars? We can put a telescope at them. And the telescope will then magnify the brightness of that star. And I think that the Apostle Paul was saying he wanted to be such a telescope so that more and more would see Jesus through him. And he wanted everything he did in his body to keep that lens clear. And the focus tightly on Christ. So, he said, here's some things I know. Second thing he said is, here's my dilemma. This is in verses 22 through 24. Here's my dilemma. Now, I think Paul believed that he would be released. I think he believed that he would be reunited with the Philippian friends. And uh, I, I think he was absolutely confident of that. But I think he also here was acknowledging that the sentence of death hung over him. There was... The real possibility that his life would end in imprisonment. And recognizing that he had a dilemma, a personal dilemma. They had him thinking. Wouldn't you, if you were facing something like that, wouldn't you be thinking about the options? Wouldn't you be thinking it through? He was thinking it through. And he was basically saying to himself, which would I prefer? Here's my dilemma. Would I prefer to stay? Or would I prefer to go? He knew that living on would provide him with more fruit. He knew that he would see more souls saved. He would be able to provide additional service to and for the Philippians and and for other believers. And he knew that he would have the opportunity to win greater rewards, more rewards uh, that would be given to him at the judgment seat of Christ. But he also knew that departing would put him in the very presence of Jesus Christ. He would be with Christ, verse 23, a place and a state which he knew was far better. I'll underline that phrase in your Bible, far better. As a matter of fact, that phrase is actually much stronger in the original Greek than our English translation can, can translate it. It might be more better translated as something like far, far better indeed. It's a very intensive word. So he wrote, I'm hard-pressed between these two things. I have this dilemma. My dilemma is I want to be with Christ, but I also want to continue to serve you in the church. I'll never forget visiting Bob Miller. Anybody in this church remember Bob Miller? Is Debbie here? Yeah, she remembers Bob Miller. Uh, Don Ellis might remember Bob. He was one of only two or three men who attended this church when I first came here about 12 years ago or so now. Bob was elderly. He had been diagnosed with cancer. I think it was cancer that was soon going to take him home. And I went to visit him one day, and I was sitting in his living room and praying with him and talking with him and uh, just kind of visiting and trying to encourage him. I asked him, as I always ask somebody like that, well, how's things going with you and the Lord? How are you two getting along right now as you're getting close to this? Are you ready to go? I mean, how how are you feeling? How's your relationship with Christ? And I remember Bob looked at me with this very stirred look, and he said, yes, I'm ready. I know where I'm going. I just don't want to go today. And I thought that was hilarious. I I remember laughing. I didn't feel bad. I was laughing. You see, I'm guessing that Paul's thinking well, somewhere along those lines, although for different reasons. I don't think there was a hint of fear, a hint of trepidation in Paul's thinking. I think he truly saw both options as good. I think he truly saw that staying had its attraction, so too did leaving. And by the way, he used a very encouraging word there in verse 23. We might gloss over it. It's the word depart. Verse number 23, I'm a hard press between the two having a desire to depart. And be with Christ, which is far better. I read somewhere where that was a word that soldiers used. It meant to take down your tent and move on. I read somewhere that it was a word that sailors used. It meant to loosen a ship and set sail. Think about that. What a picture that is of death and what it means to the believer. Just picking up stakes here and moving there. Weigh an anchor here and go on to our next port. I think that's glorious. Well, he said, so here's some things I know. Here's my dilemma. And then the third thing he said is in verses 25 through 26, verses 25 through 26, I think we could paraphrase uh, his words there as I expect to remain and that joy will result from this and I expect to come and see you again. That's basically what he's saying right there. My expectation is, yep, I'm going to be delivered from this prison. I am going to come and see you again, and we're going to rejoice together over all of that. I visited a man in a hospital one time. He was seriously ill and he was facing death. And As we talked and I expressed concern over his state, he looked at me with all seriousness and he said, don't worry about me. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be fine. Now, in his case, that was just false bravado. He was a lost man. He had no such certainty to fall back on. It was, it was basically denial. It was basically him avoiding the issue of his impending death, the issues of eternity and those things. But that's not what Paul was saying here at all. There was nothing false about this. This was not denial. This was reality. This was not false bravado. This was the certainty of faith. It was confidence A Christian can have in the face of any trial. And in Paul's case, it was a very specific confidence. It had to do with the fact that he knew he would be released from imprisonment and would see them again. But no matter what the trial, we can have the same kind of confidence, can't we? We can have the same expectation. God is in control here, and everything, no matter how it looks to us, everything is going to be just fine. So some things he knew, his dilemma, his expectation. I want to conclude by revisiting one verse that you might have noticed we skipped. You might have said "That's the best verse in the entire passage and you went right past it like it wasn't even there. Well, that's because I wanted to go back to it because it is the very best verse in the entire passage. And I think it is the key verse in the section. And that's verse number 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I read a lot of different things when I'm preparing a message, and one of the things I read was a particular commentary on Philippians by one of my favorite commentators, and he wrote this about that verse. He said, That verse cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. It might be considered the very definition of Christianity. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I can't think of any better. You see, I like short, pithy definitions of things. I like to be able to take big truths and see them put down in simple, short uh, sentences. Before uh, before I, I got to the points where I thought that social media was causing me more trouble than good, I used to use Twitter a lot. I still have a Twitter account, although I can't remember the last time that I logged into Twitter. But uh, the reason that I like Twitter was because it forced this on you. You had to say things in very short bursts. At the time, it was 128 characters. I think I think they've expanded that since then. But it forced you to think. It forced you to be brief. It forced you to take all your thoughts and make them both concise and accurate and squeeze them down. And it was hard to do sometimes. It's hard to pack a lot of truth into a tiny number of words. Brother Mark and I have been attending a series of classes with the Navigators organization. And it's about uh, uh, discipleship in the local church, and so we've been receiving some training on that, and it's it's been good. Many of you know that discipleship and the matter of making disciples has been heavy on the hearts of the elders, and uh, we have felt for the last couple of years, and we've mentioned for the last couple of years, that we feel like uh, this church, we've got to the point where we we've built the church. The Lord has built the church here, but now we need to more definitively see the building of disciples. Our mission statement is to go and to make disciples and to do it everywhere and to do it until Jesus comes. Make disciples is the key there. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, Mark and I have been wrestling with this as we've gone to this class. And over the last couple of sessions that we meet, we meet at 630 in the morning on Friday, every other Friday, with a representative from the Navigators. And the last couple of times we've met, he has tasked us with coming up with a definition of discipleship. And uh, we've looked at various scriptures and we've studied it together and we've worked through it with him and with, with ourselves individually. And uh, here, you want to you hear what my, my definition was that I came up with? Uh, it was this. A disciple is one who hears, follows, learns from, obeys, is totally immersed in the master, and shares that same focus both verbally and tangibly with others. Twenty-four horribly ver- verbose words. Much, much, much too long. And, and, and I, I thought I really had it until we went to the next class and, and he shared his definition with me. His definition of a disciple was an apprentice. Living like Christ. Five words. I love that definition. I hadn't thought of the word apprentice. That's a good word to use there uh, about discipleship. I loved it. I loved its brevity. I loved its word use. I hadn't thought about that. And then the last time we met, he gave us another definition, which was even shorter. It said a disciple is one who is maturing and multiplying. Three words. Maturing and multiplying. Three words. One of the greatest speeches that has ever been given anywhere on the face of the earth was the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. 272 words. He delivered it in under three minutes. And yet it is one of the most memorable, greatest speeches that has ever been. There was another speaker that day. Anybody know the name of the other speaker that day? Paul, you don't know the name of the other speaker that day? Edward Everett was his name. Edward Everett also spoke. He spoke before President Lincoln spoke. His speech took two hours, and it contained over 13,000 words, and nobody remembers it. If you go and look at that speech, it was actually pretty good. What he had to say was very truthful. It was very good. He said some things that Lincoln didn't say, and, and it was good, but nobody remembers it. Gravity good. You're probably saying right now, preacher, why don't you practice what you preach and shut up and sit down. I'll be done in a minute. Paul managed here in just 12 words to convey the very heart and essence of what it means to be a Christian. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. Let me quote from uh, somebody I I really like, James Montgomery Boyce. He said this. Christianity is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is rightly associated with Christianity finds its center of gravity in him. John Stott has written correctly, the person and work of Christ are the foundation rock upon which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity and all else is circumference for me to live Is Christ. Can you say that? Can you say that? The essence of Christianity is not seen in other Christians who are fallible sinners. The essence of Christianity is not seen in the church, which is filled with fallible sinners. The essence of Christianity is a relationship with a person. Jesus Christ. And if you haven't come to that conclusion, it doesn't matter what church you attend. Or what creeds you can recite. Or what Bible version you read. Uh, It doesn't matter who you can fool with your outward displays of piety uh, and, 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 and Christian observances. If you haven't come to know the person, Jesus Christ, and made him the center of your life, then you are lost. You're lost. You are yet in your sins. You have not been forgiven of your sins. And if you die today, you're going to end up in hell. The essence of Christianity is a person. For me to live is Christ. Paul said, I live with him as the center, the focus, the goal, the everything in my life. One man wrote, whatever time, life, strength I have is Christ's. Christ is the sole object for which I live. That's what Paul was saying. In another letter, the letter to the Galatians, he wrote it like this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. That was the expanded version of this very simple phrase. For to me, to live is Christ. Can you say that? Maltby Babcock. Isn't that a great name? Maltby Babcock. He was the author of my favorite hymn, which is, This is My Father's World. Maltby once said, Life is what we are alive Life is what we are alive to. When Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ, he was saying that Christ is what he was alive to. Can you say that? What is it that makes you light up? What is it that makes you come alive? For some of you, it might be your work. For some of you, it might be some particular hobby. My wife is currently absolutely obsessed with butterflies. She lights up every time a butterfly crosses her path for some it might be money it might be camping it might be whatever fill in the blank for Paul it was Christ and I'm convicted by that are you we ought to be convicted by that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and now with those words to die is gain he wasn't referring to the act of dying he was referring to the state after dying I mentioned my friend Bob Miller earlier that he was perfectly ready to go but he didn't want to go today uh, what I didn't tell you was that as I sat there and I tunneled a little deeper into his thinking on that, I discovered he had no fear of what lay beyond that. He was afraid and concerned about and not really looking forward to the actual act of dying. And which of us are? Even Billy Graham. Billy Graham one time said in a letter to a friend, he said, I, I long for heaven, but I dread getting out of this old body. Paul wasn't talking here about the act of dying when he said to die is gain. He was talking about the reality of what, what would be after that. The state of the believer after death. It's in no way negative. It's in every way positive. It's such a simple way of putting it. I love it. To die is gain. So much truth packed into just four words. Eleven letters. To die is gain. Do you believe that? Are you encouraged by that? It's so very true for the Christian. It ought to be encouraging to all of us as believers. But sadly, it's also so very untrue for the unbeliever and for the non-Christian. If you're still lost, if you're still in your sins, then death for you is too horrible to contemplate. It's not something I would even want to think of. Think of it. If you are a Christian, this life right now, this life, whether it's good or bad, no matter what you're going through, uh, if you are a Christian, then this life is the very worst you're ever going to experience. And after that is heaven. And it's going to be glorious. But if you're not yet a Christian, this life you're living now, whether it's good or bad, no matter what it is, is the very best you're ever going to experience. And after that is hell forever. Paul's words in verse 21 are true for the Christian. To die is gain. They're not true for the non-Christian. To die is gain. is a Christian thing, do you believe it? Have you done business with God so you can believe it? Have you ever come face to face with the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you ever talked to God about that? Have you ever prayed? Said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know. And I'm sorry for my sin. And I know that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sin. Please come into my life. Save my soul. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Only when you have done that can you say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what about you, Christian, can you say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? One writer suggested this, and and I'm done with this. He said, if we cannot share Paul's desire, it's because we have not seen as clearly as he has the wonder of what Christ has done. Verse 21 constitutes a powerful test for us all. Put a, put a blank after the phrase, to live is, and another blank after the phrase, and to die is. How would you fill in the blanks? If you say to live is money, then you have to also say uh, to die is to leave it all behind. If you say to live is fame, you have to also say to die is to be forgotten. If you say to live is pleasure, you must also say to die is to lose it all but if you can say with Paul to live is Christ you can also say with Paul and to die is gain is that your heart can you say that we've said throughout our studies in Philippians now over the last couple of weeks that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy joy and I ask you in closing this morning how could there be any greater joy than being able to say that, along with the Apostle Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful passage. I just pray that this would burn into our hearts. I pray that we would think about it. Lord, you've spoken to me. I pray you'd speak to others as well. I pray two ways this morning, Lord, if there are those here today who don't understand this, who can't get their mind around this, who have never yet come to the place where they could say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They've never trusted Christ. They're not saved. I pray today that if there's anybody like that in this room, that uh, the Holy Spirit would get hold of them right now. Convince them, Father, of what they have heard. Help them to believe. If they're struggling with arguments and and, and reasons for not believing, then I pray that you would break those down. And I pray that if they have questions, they would know they could step out, come to the front, someone would take the Bible and and, and help them to deal with those questions and and pray with them and and help them. Lord, I just pray no one would leave this place lost. I pray they'd be saved this day. And I pray for Christians, that they'd be encouraged by this wonderful truth, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord, if there are any who need to come and pray, I pray they do so. If any who need to come and confess and, and, and repent of anything, I pray they do so. If any need to come and, and trust Christ this day, I pray they do so. If any need to come and, 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 and suggest baptism or membership or any of those things, I pray they do so. Whatever the need might be in our hearts and our lives as we wrap up our service with this closing song, I pray, Father, we'd respond. And we'd respond as you'd have us to in Jesus' name. Amen.